Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 288. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bohr, looking at a book. There we go. And uh, welcome, everybody. It's uh, Tuesday. We are um, here in New Jersey again, yet again. And Well, I guess we're going to be here in New Jersey perpetually, right? Perpetually. Yeah, perpetual, a state of perpetual New Jerseyfication. That's right. Um, yeah. So I hope if you uh, were waiting for a pardon, you got it today. Looks like a lot of people did. So if you're a corrupt white man, you might be in line. For I one. like pardons. I'll tell you, I, I, there, was a, there was a great uh, West Wing episode where the, it was the, the title of the episode was The Benign Prerogative. And they were talking about how basically everybody used, like it was about hundreds and people pardoned so many people. And they're debating whether they can pardon this kid who's like a donor's kid who was in a drug-related charge. Right. Federal, and they decide not to put it off until after the election. And, and he kills himself in prison. So it's very sad. But like... It's uh, you know, yeah. Roger Stone knows. Hey, it's it, the table's being set. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Well, Rod Blagojevich. <laughs> that's fascinating. Yeah, truly one of the great morally misunderstood men of our time. Yeah, I mean, Rod Blagojevich got pardoned. That's amazing. That's a community. All right, here we Sentence go. Community. I do what do. I think if Trump had the power, he put Pete Rose. Into the Hall of Fame, which I think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame anyway. Did yeah, but, but and he didn't bet like against his own team. He just uh, bet on baseball. Yeah, uh, he bet. I think he. Uh, there was some feeling that he bet on games his team was playing in. He bet for his team, right? But, but he why well, he was he bet, you bet for your team. You know, it shows loyalty. <laughs> shows devotion. Yeah, yeah. Like I was I, for some reason I was turning the channels and I saw him talking about Shoeless Joe Jackson. Say he seemed like he sounded like a nice guy, which is hilarious. So. Oh, Jason Michelle can hear us. He's 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 being facetious. I'm sure. Okay, I'm sure he can hear us. I would guess because you know. Uh, are we recording? It looks we like are. the little are lines recording. are going. Yeah. Look, and the lines are going. Lines are going over up and down. Too. Yeah. Look at that. Lines everywhere. So there we go. And uh, we have a debate tomorrow night. Yeah, in Vegas, he had another caucus. They were going to use the same app that the I, <laughs> and they just switched. Oh, so, but then you think you think about this, like so. Now you're switching last minute to a different app. Oh which- yeah, no, it's so good that they've mastered technology. Yeah, you know, right now one of the easiest jobs in the world is whatever the Russian agent in charge of undermining the Democrats. Oh yeah, that's yeah. Like, I've always said, people. I, I I think the easiest job in the world would be the devils, because what's the job of the devil is to get people to behave badly. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, right now the second easiest job in the world is the Russian in charge of the Democrats. Yeah. Uh, helping undermine them. They're working on it. They're working on themselves. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. So, and we have the this the flu from China, the uh what's it called? The uh coronavirus. Coronavirus. Yeah, yeah, it's uh we don't know anybody affected yet. No, I mean, but no people, I mean, regular flu is killing people. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's uh, I know two local well, I don't know them, but there was a kid uh, one of the teachers from my church, they lost a young man, uh, a middle school kid, died of the flu. And then I just saw another kid back in – a grade school kid back near where I lived in Delaware County. So it's – I mean, the regular flu is – we tend to – I mean, you know if you work with vulnerable populations how serious the flu can be. But the regular flu still kills more people. So 
Do you know there's a, recently just a 700 pound bear shot in Morris County, New Jersey? Like that's like 40 minutes from here, 45 minutes. Well, why'd they shoot it? I don't know, but it's a record. It's a big bear. 700 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, well, you can, you know, when you're eating suburban New Jersey folks. Yeah, <laughs> they don't mess around. <laughs> you don't mess around. You know, I'm sorry. So today we're going to talk about Pelagianism and yeah, Pelagius. Yeah, we started this, we started down this road back last year. But it's where if you, for those of you who actually follow us and care about what we're doing, uh, which we care what we're doing. We, we care. Should, yeah. Most of the time. Most of the time. I'd say like 85% almost. 84% of the time. Yeah. But we've been doing a series on heresy, and so we are now at Pelagius, uh, which right, I'll just—I'm not sure Pelagius was a heretic. So that's that's my first. Statement. Well, one of the things we don't we don't really know much about Pelagius except from opponents. Like we. Well, I did. I, well, okay. I, I just as I said, you. I one. There was a time in my life, and I was kind of an expert on Pelagius, but. Um, I could not find that paper I wrote many years ago. So you have to. I have to do this mostly from memory. We have his commentaries. We do have. He wrote a series of commentaries on Paul's writings, and the Romans one was the one that most incensed people, like Augustine. Right. right. Well, I think. All right. Let's put this quick and real quick in context. Pelagius' controversy basically is precipitated by the sack of Rome, and so um, uh, rich Christians in an age of barbarians—they're—they're uh, they're running around. Rich Christians in an age of barbarians. I like that. Ronnie Asiderus wrote Ronnie that. Ronnie <laughs> And Pelagius was, they were calling him Scottish at the time, right? But that really, now we think that people he, that are calling Scottish were Irish. But he was from Britain. Britain. Uh, he was from Romanized Britain. Uh, and he was a layman. And uh, one of the things in this kind of late antiquity, this time in Rome, it really was kind of the, it was the age of the, you know, the layman, the, the layman living an ascetic life. You know, it's what's interesting, Pelagius's lifestyle is really what Augustine was trying to get. You know, I mean, he, uh, uh, Augustine did not want to be a bishop. Um, uh, matter of fact, when they ordained him a presbyter, he wept and people said, oh, he's upset because he wanted to be bishop. No, he was trying to actually, why he went to Hippo, because it was notorious in those days, if you were a young and gifted person and you showed up in a town, they kept you as their bishop. And uh, the reason he went to Hippo was so uh, they already had a bishop, so he thought we could hang out here. But his goal was to live a life of uh, kind of ascetic, uh, not leisure, but to live a life of an ascetic without actually living in a former monastery. And uh, I mean, the kind of circle of friends that he had, they were they were seeking to live kind of a life of prayer and fasting and, and devotion. And there were a lot of folks, um, you know, a lot of the aristocracy that were Christian in this time period had tried, had adapted these kind of things. I mean, there's great stories of uh, one of the wealthiest uh, women in the Roman Empire gave it all away uh, to live a life as a nun. So there's all these kind of stories. Melania is one of the most famous one. But um, with the sack of Rome, a lot of people are displaced. And so how uh, it's not really Pelagius who first gets the press, but it's one of his more radical associate, Celestius, who gets in trouble in Carthage. He starts questioning what's going on in the Church of Carthage, and that's how uh, Augustine gets involved in it. As a matter of fact, Pelagius actually stopped in Hippo as they were sojourning on their way you know, through North Africa, but Augustine was out of town at that point, so they never actually met face-to-face. But that's kind of how the controversy gets started. The uh, Celestius is, is denied ordination in Carthage, and so 
thus the controversy begins. I love one. And there's six kind of uh, from Celestius's, right? Like uh, we, we tried to become a, a presbyter in, in, right. Carthage. In, in, in Carthage. And if you want to, if you want to get ordained by your bishop, you probably, again, those of us don't have bishops, but you don't start by ripping them. No. <laughs> ripping their theology. So these things were branded, <laughs> these points from Celestius, right? Were branded her- heretical. Even if one, if, even if Adam had not sinned, he would have died. Two, Adam's sin harmed only himself, not the human race. Three, children just born are in the same state as as Adam before his fall. Four, the whole human race neither dies through Adam's sin or death, nor rises again through the resurrection of Christ. Five, the Mosaic law is as good a guide to heaven as the gospel. And six, even before the advent of Christ, there were men who were without sin. Right. Uh, now, Celestius had a more extreme view. Also, what got him in trouble was questioning the necessity of infant baptism, which coming right after the Donatist controversy, starting to mess with baptism, is not was not what you necessarily wanted to do. Uh, one of my Peter Brown's quotes about Pelagius is that Augustine had formulated uh, Pelagius's thought in his mind before Pelagius had. So, there's a sense where um, this debate becomes one of letters back and forth. Um, the other thing that's kind of important to put in context with uh, Augustine is he's still in the end, or is at the end of the post, all the post work of the Donatist controversy. So um, Augustine has just fought a battle about uh, the church of the common person as opposed to the elitist church. Okay, so it's um, important to see that Augustine, in many ways, sees in the the early Pelagius controversy in a very similar way as an extension of what was at stake in the Donatist controversy. And you can still argue that at least that part of the insight is right. So the question, you know, those are the particulars uh, of the idea, okay? But the heart of it, really, for Pelagius was, if God commanded perfection, okay, then post-redeemed uh, humans should be able to to theoretically achieve it, Um uh, if God says you know, be perfect as I'm as you know, be perfect as I am perfect, then <clears throat> theoretically it should be possible. The other thing um, that you know, kind of the impetus, if you would, of the whole Pelagius movement, it was a reformed movement. It was reacting to what they thought was a lax church, a church that um, you know was no longer the church of the martyrs. Again, you can see in some levels this. By the time we're in Pelagius, you know the the ascetic uh, movement is over. It was almost a, is a century old. So there's a sense where this kind of the ascetic as the ideal person of faith is is you know held by by probably a majority of Christians. This is the uh, to live to really live the the spiritual life is to renounce worldly ambition and to you know be one of the athletes of God. So there's a sense where. You know the hero stories, if you would, of of the church in late antiquity was not you know the gladiator who got born again. It was the person who renounced everything and, and was trying to live the vita apostolica, the, the way of the of the way of Christ. You know, it's interesting. There's um, this senator from Missouri, right? He's a Republican, uh, Josh Joshua Hawley, who gave a commencement address at um, what university was it? Um, at the King's College in New York. And he's a Republican and conservative, but his his commencement address was called "The Age of Pelagius," and it was circulated pretty widely. And he in it he says um, he talks about how sort of Pelagius's individualism and sort of you know inf- uh, okay from Facebook. Hmm, sounds like y'all have a lot in common. Who me and Pelagius? I don't know. I don't know. Tommy Marshall. Hey, how are you? Hope you're well. Uh, that's from Facebook Live. 
from the live stream. Oh, he says the Pelagian view says the individual is most free when he's most alone, able to choose his own way without interference, family and tradition, neighborhood and church, these things that get in the way of uninhibited free choice. And this Pelagian idea of freedom is one of our cultural, or is one of our cultural leaders have embraced for decades now. But here's the paradox for all the big talk about individual freedom. Pelagian philosophies made American society more hierarchical and made it more elitist. This is no accident. Pelagius himself was most popular with the old senatorial families of Rome, the wealthy, the well-connected, the aristocrats. They were, they were his patrons. And it's interesting because, you know, you, by the way, there's a classic example where a little bit of church knowledge is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Right. Dangerous. That's, he misses the whole point. Go ahead. But I, I mean, I mean, I think here's what he's saying though. But I was thinking about what you're saying for the church of the common person versus the right. church of the elite. And, and, you know, there is a sense in which that, you know, and I, 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 it, I do think it's fair to say, in general, most American Christians are instinctively Pelagian, right? We have we have this kind of sense that. Well, uh, in what sense? Define it. Uh, I think most people think that we are. I think existentially, a lot of people think that we have more libertine freedom than than I think a, a traditional Augustinian would think. Well, I, I think we think we're freer than we actually are. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, you know, this is like a theme you and I. We actually revisit this thing frequently yeah. over the years. I first of all, again, one of my trouble. I, I, you know, again, it's easy to do, but when you take historical categories and reimagine them, sure, yeah, it's so anachronistic. For, for yeah. instance, when you know the Pelagian debate among Reformed churches has very little to do with Pelagius, now, but that's that's another thing. And <clears throat> actually, there's this the sense where Pelagius really kind of had a pessimistic view. You know, of I mean, it's interesting. The irony of it is, though, he felt theoretically. Humans could do that. Um, very few people actually could do it. I mean, I think it's interesting. Our senator from Missouri, what he often what he defined there as Christian values, actually kind of pagan Roman values, <laughs> <laughs> which which see a preview. Our, you know, our last podcast kind of yeah. speaks about that. But I do think there's a sense where, um, but that pessimism, like the, the pessim, it's not pessimism though. If, is if you say like that, even though few people do achieve it, it's just because of their lack of. It's ignorance, lack of desire, commitment. It's not f- because of fundamentally tragic nature of human existence. Well, I, but I think, you know, but see the thing in Pelagius, see a lot of people, you know, Pelagius becomes a hero of some modernity because it's anti-Augustine. Yeah. But he, yeah. in this debate, Augustine is the innovator. Pelagius isn't. I mean, that's, that's, I think, so that's why, I mean, those who argue that Augustine, uh, I think late Augustine is borderline heretical. If you want, if you're going to, if Pelagius, if if Celestius is heretical, late Augustine is too. That's part of the reasons the church is never fully Augustinian. I mean, if you're derog- if you if you're negative about uh, this is why the Jansenists get pretty rough treatment, right? Right. Well, Post Reformation, and yet they they they're pretty much chapter and verse in Augustine. Right. Right. So, for instance, if you're anti-Catholic, then the Catholic Church is semi-Pelagian. If you are, I think, a little more accurate. It's the church is always semi-Augustinian, right? Right, and, right, right. And and partially because you know they're ranked into the extreme late late Augustine. I mean, by you know this this is this really accompanies Augustine for the rest of his life. I mean, one of the last the last two things he writes is really involved in the late Pelagian controversy where where he's fighting arguing Julian. And one of the things that's interesting too is that this is probably the only controversy in Augustine's life where he's dealing with intellectual peers. I mean, you know, he was when with both the Manichaean and the Dantist, he was he was dealing with uh, Texas League players, but there, but these are first rate thinkers. Julian is every bit of thinker. The late, the late uh, Pelagian controversy, which is where some of the more extreme. It's interesting. 
the rhetoric of this argument pushes both parties to more extremes. <clears throat> but see, the thing about well, that's kind of the irony of play. Is it is it pessimistic or 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 not? On one level, you can say, well, you know, humanity has potential. But when you inherently believe that if you fall short of that, you are condemned to hell, and only you know if it narrow is the gate by which people enter into. I mean, one of the things it's an it's a it's an impulse. The Pelagian narrowness of Christianity is always an impulse. You know that. Uh, that is heaven big or small. And in reality, whether or not, you know, Pelagius as the champion of the, of the anti-Augustinian view of extreme view of total depravity is seen as a progressive. But if you actually, the implications of his thinking, uh, I mean, I'm actually talking about the original Pelagius and Celestius and Julian, was that very, very few are saved. And, um, and again, that, that that point. So there is that kind of elitist about it. I mean, that's the trouble with any kind of. I, I think church reform is always in danger of creating the church of us versus them, and and uh, usually Fitch wrote a book on it. Yeah, right. But the, but the trouble with us is that. But even Fitch falls into a little bit of that elitist kind of thinking with his. He eats at McDonald's every day, dude. Well, no. Come on. I'm, I'm telling I'm telling like, I'm not elite. I'm, I, look, I'm at McDonald's. Here it is. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always doing Trump there. Yeah. I mean, that, again, I mean, that's on the ironies. I mean, one of the ironies of Anabaptist people, there, there's a generosity to them, but there's also the kingdom, the kingdom kind of becomes small. Well, small. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, whether or not you like Augustine's insights. If you're reformed, we have the biggest, most glorious kingdom. Right, Don, Donald Trump. What depends what, the reform church? It depends. America. It depends what version of reform. Okay, you know that's part of why you know you end up either being a universalist or a double predestinationist. That's yeah. the logic of the thing, and that's actually the doctrine of double predestination gets invented by a late brooding Augustine in this. Um, <laughs> late brooding. Yeah, he's brooding. Yeah, he's he's not in a happy not not a happy place. So maybe because probably m- many of our listeners. When they talk about Pelagius, uh, are more in the tune of uh, our, our armchair theologian from the fine state of Missouri. So let's talk about the Pelagian controversy as the rhetoric was used during the Reformation, which is more your expertise. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, this is you know, this is the, sort of the classic debate between, say, Erasmus and Luther, right, on the nature right. of freedom. And and I mean, Luther at the end of his life says that the bondage of the will is like the most important thing he wrote. Right. And you know, there's this. There's another guy who's brooding at the end of the yeah, He probably came out of the womb brooding. <laughs> What's his name? One of the. I remember the, one of the stark things. I mean, this is somebody who liked Luther said. In many ways, it's a tragedy that he lived beyond the age of thirty, <laughs> which is not <laughs> second half of 1618. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So yeah, I mean, you, so this you know you have this sense of of you know the, the, this idea that human nature is fundamentally. Um, you know, in a tragic state of, of sin, right. where, where, you know, to be, uh, uh, Ty Littleton says, I don't call him back. When was the last time Ty? Well, Littleton, call us. Welcome. We'll call you. We'll call you back. You're the man. This is from Facebook Live. You know, one of the things I, I was just rereading the other day, which kind of summarizes, I think, the way that debate plays out, I was rereading um, something um, from Paul Zoll, oh, uh, his book, The First Christian, which I, I think is, I'm pretty sure is kind of a popularized version of his um dissertation stuff which he did on the second quest for the historical Jesus and he was he was talking about um some things that he found I'm trying to find it here oh was, uh, was ragging on Michelle Todd Littleton says well you're always happy from Facebook live Todd Littleton says was ragging on Michelle you're always happy free, free to rag on Michelle in this podcast <laughs> it's something that uh is is you know we're not the only people that do it um 
so Paul here is talking about um, the antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, he's talking about how Jesus is sort of going to, you know, the, the corrupt nature of the heart, like this, this, you know, the, he ties the nose, not just like, you know, I, you've, you've heard it said that uh, not if you just, if you, if you commit adultery, but if you look at a woman or right, if, if you're sele- angry. Right, it's selectionary readings right now. Right? Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, so he says, he's talking about uh, how this is a sort of, um, he, he sees there in Jesus this, the, the seedbed of something like original sin where he says what comes out of it, the problem is not what goes into us, but this comes out of us. Right. He says, I focus on the anthropology of Christian, Christianity because it is an area where faith goes wrong. The antitheses of the first Christian are, in fact, a Freudian position of depth that explains the world. The antitheses explain the First World War, the Holocaust, Rwanda addictions, and the numberless lawsuits that shatter families, together with the second marriages that damage worlds and generations of people. The antitheses explain the captivity of individuals who are mastered by forces they do not understand, wrestled to the ground by eruptions of impulsive emotion that mow down the ones they love or thought they loved. And I think that, um, and then he says later, he says, Christians, like everybody else, enjoy believing that they possess free will, the freedom to do what they want. But experience, and certainly the words of Christ and his antitheses, contest this idea down the line. All you need to do is consider the addicted, the touchy, the alcoholic, the angry, the rebellious, the conforming, and you see that the freedom people want to have is much more limited than they think. Empirical observation contradicts the conviction that people wish to convey to themselves that they are free. The American film masterpiece Magnolia is an assault on the idea that people possess free will. And there, Paul is summarizing this sort of how this debate plays out in the Reformation and in right. continued, continues to, in, in Protestantism today, right. where this notion of just how... Um, you know, how desperate is the human plight? Well, and I, I think it's an interest it's an interesting insight. It's also, I think, has a danger of, of doing to the Sermon on the Mount what dispensationalism does. You know, and in some ways in some ways taking the I mean, again, the challenge what Jesus is doing. He's talking I mean, he's talking about that true sin happens in the intentionality, you know, in our right. intentionality. Uh, I don't think he's saying it just to say, "Oh, by the way, none of you can do it." I, I, that's my that's my problem of a of a certain particular read of the sermon. Now, I think I, again because I, I only think part of it is to think if anybody thinks they're a lawkeeper, they are they right. are in, da- in the chief danger. You know, in the sense of that even in our best moments. Our intentions can be ambiguous. As I mean, be. except if it's Trump, because there's a perfect call. There's no <laughs> well, mix But I, yeah, but I also don't want to gut the um, the imperative of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, because there's a sense where he clearly Jesus in the last commandment continues an extension of that. I mean, this week we're talking about you know if you you know you should love your enemies, and certainly the last man the mandate he gives to the church, and this is a post resurrection community in John's Gospel. Is where to love as he is love, which in many ways is, you know. And I think the temptation is to water it down to the level where it is capable. To say that, okay, if I have loved my enemy, I have. The, I mean, I think our our you know, and again, I, my, the Calvinists and me say, I don't. We don't just repent of our of vices; we repent of our virtues because because our best human moments of virtue are often tainted and ambiguous. I agree, but I also think um, it's an innovation to marginalize Jesus. I, I'm not marching. No, I, I don't. But the in fact, I, I'm saying Jesus is ratcheting up. Well, he does the ratchet up. Demand. He does ratchet up, but it's, he's not doing it as an empty exercise. That we're not called to do it. See, I, I think that's. I think. Yeah, I don't think it's empty exercise. I, I think it's to say that, like, ultimately, you are. I mean, part of the transformation, right, is that, like, is that you are. So I was saying in my sermon, like on Sunday, like, you know, if you're the kind of person that, let's say, you are someone that is, you know, obsessive about punctuality, and then. 
you are uh, the one that's late. First off, that humbles you for at least for the moment. Right. And, and maybe you're, but then secondly, if you're treated in a way by the people that you're inconveniencing, that, that's gracious, all of a sudden you're not just humbled. You, you might be healed. I mean, there's there's a transformation because all of a sudden then you change the way you know you see sort of uh, your lack of love. Like I think that part of all those all those um, antitheses, it's like this is what Calvin gets at. Like all the prohibitions in the law. Right always have a positive correlation. So right. it's, it's not just don't not steal. It's also, it's sinful not to be generous. So it's, it's lovelessness is murder. And, and the Scott's confession turns around and says, we're supposed to do this. Yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely. I think yeah. we're supposed to do the law. I right. mean, the, the law is well, good, but, but we're supposed to do the Christ, the Christ version of it too. I mean, my whole thing, absolutely. I think we're I don't, to. I don't think the Sermon on the Mount is just an illustration of our failure. I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think, it, I don't think it's an illustration of failure. Either. I think the law is always, so you're, saying, you're, saying this, you're saying the Sermon on the Mount is is still under the law. I, I think it, I think so. Jesus is reiterating the law, so it's nothing it has nothing to do with those post grace. I, I think that I think that what when we when we cut anything that is and again the law is good. I mean, well, I'm just saying. So you don't. But the, the Jesus the, himself says, "I've got, <laughs> come, to, come it's, to it's part in you know, the gospel. Most Matthew's five big discourse. Come, come, he come. gives it on a mount. Right. <laughs> I knew Moses. Right. I think Matthew intends us to think of it like a new Torah. That's, and it's the post-resurrection community saying this is what the Christian community is supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. The law is always what we're supposed to do. No, you're just, law, see, you're just saying Jesus equals the law. So no, you're no, saying. No, the, the, Heart, so you, at so the heart of the law, Paul, but not Jesus. Is that what you're saying? Well, no. At the at the heart of the law is to love God and all He's made. I mean, that's no. The right. This is like Gamaliel saying, "I can recite the whole Torah on one leg." You know, which right. is the, yeah. But what so I'm that's, saying, so that, that's what, always what's different about your project than the dispensationalist. Basically, it got. I don't have those weird charts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have stupid charts. See, one <laughs> that's actually the weakness of my position—the lack of cool charts—and no, nobody can be able to theme park out of my. See, see, one of the things I, I again, my problem with late Augustine, my problem with extreme Calvinism, yeah, other than it not being biblical, which is a big enough problem. Is that uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm in the extreme Calvinist camp mm-hmm. right now. Well, the, the whole the whole point being, if you go back to the primitive church, now Pelagius is you know Pelagius and the Pelagians are pushed to extreme positions by the argument. I mean, what you Celestius is pushed up against the wall. Once you're arguing as you got the, the virtue of infant damnation, your back's against the wall. When you're doubling down on infant damnation, you're kind of like, all right. Even Bonaventure. Bonaventure, yeah. so he didn't really mean this. <laughs> exactly. Come on. He, he, I love Augustine, but he didn't, you know, maybe he went a little yeah, too far. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but they have to even invent limbo to kind of cover Augustine's ass in this one. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you. To be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. 
Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butrin, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedi, and Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. But one of the things that, that I'm – I mean, this is where the tension, I think, is. And this is – there's a sense where what's really clear, the power of the primitive church in part was in the, in the late – or in the pagan world was that you're not bound by the fates. You're not, you're not bound by fortua. You are – even though you may be born a slave, you may be born a woman, you may be born a Gentile. In Christ, there is no male nor female, no Jew or Gentile, uh, no slave or free. And the great appeal, even against Gnosticism in the pagan world, the first two centuries, the first even the first three centuries, was this idea that the freedom that we have in Christ. Okay. Now, um, by the way, I, I'm also different from the dispensationalists in that I'm not. I was just being. Retarded. I'm not. I'm not p- picturing. I'm actually arguing a kind of traditional kind of Protestant covenant view that like that there's continuity between the testaments and that and that Jesus does fulfill so the, what's at the heart of of Torah. So you would relook at you so you would say sanctified Christian or sanctified people can look at Jesus's reworking of Torah as a third use of the law. I think their third use of the law is to knock you on your answer again if the second one if the second one doesn't work. <laughs> But yeah, I'll call it, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, if you want to say things, that, sure. That's in book five of the Institute. Exactly, that's in book five. <laughs> book five. Not yeah. all of you have book five. We, no, have, we no. have it. It's over here somewhere. <laughs> I found, yeah, yeah it's, well, Bill and I are going to release it one day. <laughs> We're going to send a signed copy of this Wingley and Taliban <laughs> with our compliments. No. Actually, I'm, I'm not- see violation. I, I'm actually, for me, part of it, and I don't think I fully, you know, I mean, I react sometimes to extremes of the whole hyper-Lutheran or, or late Calvin view or hyper-Calvinist view of this. But again, I find myself agreeing with middle Augustine on this. Okay, I liked Augustine in the middle of the controversy. Still, for me, kind of where I'm where I'm at on this, which would be I'm not a, not I would disagree with Pelagius was in uh, the work Spirit in the Letter, which is in the in kind of the beginning of the controversy. He says humans were were free to choose, but not free to attain. And I think that's I think that's helpful because there's a sense where it doesn't deny the reality of human choice. It's just um, what it does is realize that humans, unassisted by grace, you know, can't attain. And I think I think that's part of where that's 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 where Augustine um, really I think is is corrective to the Pelagians because when Pelagians get pushed up against the wall, there's not much difference between will and grace in the in the extreme Pelagian. I mean, that's kind of that's you know that's part of the problem of the late medieval church, and that's rightfully what. I think early Luther, Luther had one half of one year or whatever before he became fifteen. But I also think, like, can you have? I mean, I think can you can you have a high view of Christ's person and a low view of Christ's work? Absolutely, I think. Yeah. In fact, Phil Carey even argues. Can't you have both? Can't you have a high? Well, view you of could both? have a low. Well, 
Yeah, if you have a low view of Christ's person, you necessarily have a low view of his work. But if you have a high view of his person, you don't necessarily have a high view of his work. But one thing, like just on the predestination thing, in this book uh, by Edward Oaks, A Theology of Grace and Six Controversies, he basically says Romans 8, you know, what shall we say then? Tell us if God is for us, who can, you know, who can be against us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. He says that is the doctrine of predestination. He's, he also talks about the significance of gratitude. He says that is the doctrine of predestination. But three factors the history of theology shows can throw off this hope-grounding doctrine and turn it into something very nearly the opposite. One, the psychology of the supposedly predestined believer. <laughs> Two, the application of temporal categories of understanding to divine intentionality. And three, the description of divine causality using human analogies, or at least the wrong ones. And I think that's a great summary of where, like, because what what Augustine, I think, again, for the the church of the broad church that you know it, it, basically it's saying, look, you know we're we're in need of grace. it's it's mm-hmm. it's a miraculous thing and and it it you know God is you know the, our life, it's like Romans our life is not just subject merely to the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, the vicissitudes of like, and, and that this thing, but I think what the trouble like when that is personal to you, right. I think that's where the power, when it's, but then the problem is, you know, Calvin says stuff like, well, you have to act like everyone's elect. But if you think, hey, and more, you're, you're going to sit there and be like, sheep, goat, sheep, goat, sleeping in church, goat, <laughs> like pain in the ass at, at the, at the, at the right. session, goat. I mean, you just, then that, like, if you have a bifurcated anthropology, right. you, you will just bifurcate people. Like, as, as well, well intentioned as you think you'd be, it's just, Human nature, you're going to well, do that. I don't know for sure, but I was—I I wouldn't be surprised if Calvin got that from Augustine's sermon on yeah, sheep and goats. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I no. Mean, no. And be- Bart quotes and his stuff on election. Bart quotes them both and says, "This is exactly what the doctrine of election is not. Right? It's not uh, to do like armchair anthropology looking at a congregation or something." Well, I, you know, I, I do think there's a sense where. Um, I do think it's helpful to, to think of Augustine as an innovation because, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people say, where did Pelagian's thought come from? Well, it came from everywhere. I mean, it was kind of the, it was the natural extension of a reaction to what was perceived as a lax church, okay? And that, how do you how do you solve a lax church? Well, you, over, you perform. And so there's a sense where, this is where Augustine and those who followed after him with their instincts to kind of critique elitism in, in the church, which, you know, Luther would be the prime example, um, is is really catching on what the insight Augustine had. I mean, the story is that when Pelagius was reading Confessions, he got to, was it book, book 10? I think it's book 10 where where uh, Augustine says, uh, uh, you know, command what you will and will what you command. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the story is Pelagius threw the book across the, across the <laughs> floor. And that's where... Augustine's that's in a, like in a what's that a silver Lines playbook he's reading um guns of august because so it's so sad yeah. <laughs> but the point being was like the confessions as uh as a art form if you would the, the story of the great the great man or great one the great hero of the faith usually at that point where they you know where augustine after augustine's conversion that's usually when they say and i lived on i went on to live a triumphant <laughs> yeah, spiritual yeah, yeah, life yeah. augustine's uh maybe in part you know, helping birth modern psychology. I mean, last week in my sermon rhetorically, I said it might be in the Sermon on the Mount where the birth of the individual begins. But certain 
basically the idea of the Western psychological self. A lot of that happens with the person of honesty. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do think that- and, and Yeah, that and our, our, our interior self. Interior Like this self. idea, like now you couldn't get through a, a serial drama or any novel or just even your own day without thinking, well, is the internal me versus the external me? But yeah, that is an innovation in, in literature. And, and, and it creates a theological innovation. We, one thing we didn't even talk about- we, you know, the idea of post-baptismal sin is still an open issue, yeah. and, you know, it's still not a totally solved issue in nature, it's kind of officially solved, but it's still, what do you do about post-baptismal sin? I, I, I think, though, you know, again, this is where, gonna, where, you know, we only want the pristine faith, what the Bible taught. Well, obviously, the Bible is pretty ambiguous about some of these things, because we are all, we all benefit from these debates and thinking about it. I do think... um where, you know, if you draw a line from Augustine to Aquinas to Luther, then to Bart, there's a sense where, in, in some ways, Bart, I think, corrects the implications of some of this. Uh, well, by this Gal- is like where only Nixon could go to China. It's like only the Reformed Calvinists could overturn Calvinism. Right. Where he, <laughs> yeah. And he kind of returns back to the Book of Ephesians yeah. and Athanasius. But I think to me, I still, for me, there's part of me that doesn't want to, to lose this kind of tension. I, I sometimes, this has been our ongoing discussion for most of the life of this podcast, where part of my, I understand the, that discovery, even Paul Paul Zoll's rediscovery of Luther is a liberating thing, particularly from people who are dealing with a different kinds of, who are dealing with liberal Pelagianism, where this idea where grace doesn't seem to to matter. I mean, I think- That that is interesting, because in the church, there are, there are, there are conservative and liberal forms of that. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand. And so, um, because we're human, because we have a limited perspective, also because we receive, you know, we don't usually invent our issues. We are, we receive yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. You inherit them. Yeah. So, there's a sense where I think the great dialectic of these arguments, I mean, freedom versus grace, I think there's, there still needs to be a way not to collapse them. Yeah. And I think that's why, again, I often go to that middle Augustine, because Augustine's brilliance, whether you look at the end of the confessions or even in, Spirit in the letter is, you know what? It's more complicated. No, his brilliance is when he's in, in the city of God, when he says, was he talking about the, where the Nephilim River? Look, there are giants. My buddy might saw a giant's footprint in Corsica. <laughs> he talks about tunnel farting, people yeah. that can fart yeah. in tune. <laughs> See, right there. Those of you who skipped over, See, you, those of you who were assigned to read the entire city of God, but just skipped you did, it. You missed a lot. You missed a lot. But, uh, tunnel farting. Yeah. So I think there's a sense where one of the, I think it's always good to go back to the initial Augustine Pelagius debate to go back and look at the, what was the stake of the Reformation, so that we're not piling rhetoric with rhetoric. In other words, we have very see for instance, I don't think any of us want to be total biological determinist, nor do any of us want to be so simplistic as to think well everything happens because we choose it. Right, right. And I think that actually is a has been one of the ongoing. Struggles to figure that out yeah. in the church. And so I, I think to me, um, to go back and look at the initial debates uh, and see how uh, the insights both of them had and how maybe arguing with each other distorted them is helpful. I mean, there's a sense where um, I don't, you know, when I think of, when I think of semi, you know, when I think of there, I was just reading something recently about just the reforms of John Wesley. And the, and again, you know, we can talk about all the damage that the doctrine of Christian perfection has caused. I had a a, a Christian psychologist friend of mine who said the holiness movement kept him in business. There you go. Yeah. So, but having also, if you stop and think that this idea that humanity can improve under grace 
and all the amazing things just that the Wesleyan movement brought about, uh, all the positive chains, it's not so simple as, oh, well, okay, they're just legalistic, which they certainly became. And there's all kinds of collateral damage with this idea of perfectionism, but also the idea that the transformational power of Christ can happen in real lives in real time. I don't think we ever want to get, I don't think we ever want to lose that. Of course we don't. Yeah. But, but I think sometimes we flirt with it. So this is, in conclusion of the Oaks essay, he says, he's talking about exactly what you're saying. He quotes von who's, Bach, who's this? Uh, uh, Ed, Edward T. Oaks in okay. this book about grace. He was a Catholic, a Jesuit. Um, he quotes this paragraph from von Balthazar where uh, he says, in the long run, people cannot rest content with unsolved problems. And he, right. he basically says we need open-ended tensions. Right, right. And then his, his conclusion is, or, and perhaps the more lapidary formulation of Ludwig Wittgenstein, within Christianity, it's, as though God says to men, don't act out a tragedy. Don't enact heaven and hell on earth. Heaven and hell are my affair. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope everybody that's... Um, there we go. Command what you will and will what you command. That's still... I pray that one. All yeah, right. it's, it's a great prayer. <laughs> All right, take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Bye now. Hey, listeners. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening and God bless.